But there are at least five different kinds of manifestos of targeted violent offenders. And they are, uh, the first one's short social media post. The next one is elaborate essay style statements. The other one, another one is strategic action plans. Then there's the people, number four, who write the thought-provoking flyers. And the last one here is... My daughter gave me a call this morning uh, with the wedding being on Saturday. And she said, Dad, we got a problem. And I'm thinking... Are they breaking up after I paid the whole wedding off, you know? And she says, I just got something in the mail that my marriage license is no good from when we were married in the church. I said, what do you mean it's no good? She goes, the priest never filled out his section. Everybody filled out their section, but the priest didn't fill out her section. Well, she was a basket case. So I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I said, go down, FedEx it to me. Before you FedEx it, make sure you make a copy so you have a copy of it as well. Send it to me and I'll take it up first thing tomorrow. So that's exactly what we're doing with the priest. Uh, but it's amazing. God works in strange ways, right? And I'm sure um, it's all for a reason. I agree. I agree. Maybe he wants me to renew my wedding vows as well. What do you think? I'm a linguist. I like to renew my vowels. <laughs> sometimes, vowel? sometimes consonants too. Well, I was going to go A, E, I, O, and U. And sometimes Y. Because I never know why. And on that pleasant note... Are we actually doing cold red at this very moment? We are. We are. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm James R. Fitzgerald, a.k.a. Fitz. You've been listening to, tell us your name, Ray. Uh, Ray Carr. You just call me Ray. And uh, we're both retired FBI, uh, uh, former police officer here. Ray is a uh, FBI agent extraordinaire wearing many hats. Back in the day, we're both college professors now. Ray, kind of full-time, me part-time. But uh, that works for us. It sure does, Jim. It sure does. So I have a question for you. Remember you hit me with a question last week? I did. And you talked about like the first day at the FBI Academy. And, you know, we went into the next, you know, few weeks and few months at the FBI Academy. Let me ask you, and I, we, didn't, we didn't rehearse this. I didn't tell you this up front. What, um, what was your very first day like when you showed up at your F? Uh, OA, first office assignment, which in your case was Buffalo. Do you remember walking in the door that day? Well, I actually didn't get a chance to walk in the door till later in the morning. I was uh, staying at this place. It was a Judy M Motel. It was like an efficiency apartment uh, with a little kitchenette inside with a one bedroom. And I remember getting a call from my training agent. And he says, uh, he's called me and he says, hey, kid. Now, I'm a 30-year-old man, and he calls me kid, so I'm thinking, okay. And he says, hey, kid, he says, uh, I'm picking you up at 5.30 a.m. Be ready to go. So 5.30 a.m., I'm in my suit, have my wingtips on. He, he picks me up. He's the epitome of everything I thought a real FBI agent would look like. He's got his suit on, impeccably dressed with the wingtips. I get in the car with him, and the first thing he says to me, we're going out, and he tells me we're doing a – the night before, he says, we're doing an undercover, uh, they were doing an undercover buy with some stolen automobiles because we're right near the Canadian border in Buffalo, New York. But I'm in Clarence, New York, and he says, you know, kid, he says, this ain't Quantico and this ain't Hogan's Alley out here. And uh, I said, thanks for clearing that up for me. And he, under his breath, I heard him say, smart ass, right? And I thought, oh, boy, am I stepping off on the wrong foot? Well... Lo and behold, 
you know, you sat around, you waited and waited and waited, and nothing ever kicked off my first day as an FBI agent. So we go back into the office. I get my desk. Uh, he says, come on, I'm going to take you out and show you how to use the car radio and give you a little tour of the Buffalo area. So we go out, and he says, uh, he starts going over the radio codes. He says, you got to have these radio codes memorized by tomorrow. I'm thinking, what is this, high school? i got to have something memorized, right? So the first week goes by, and it, it, it's not a bad week. I'm learning some things. But what happens is uh, Friday night after work, he says to me, and I, I don't have a take-home car yet, so I'm, I'm kind of sharing a car. So he says to me, he says, what are you doing tonight, Ray? And I says, well, I'm just going to go home, grab a sandwich, and you know, maybe a beer or two and sit down and watch some TV. Uh, what else do you do? I don't know anybody in the area. So he says, you're coming with me. I'm going to take you to where they discovered chicken wings. I thought, Buffalo chicken wings. I says, oh boy, here we go. Well, we went out. Needless to say, we had a very, very good time uh, that night. And we went back and stayed at his place, which was very close to Orchard Park, uh, where the Buffalo Bills Stadium is. And uh, I wake up the next morning. He's a bachelor. He's divorced. He has a son. His son and wife live in Rochester. So I get up and I'm hungry. Hungry as anything first thing in the morning. It's about nine o'clock. And I go into his kitchen. I'm looking. There's nothing in the fridge but a six pack of beer. And in the cabinet is Cocoa Puffs. So I pour a bowl of Cocoa Puffs. There's no milk. So I'm drinking a beer and having Cocoa Puffs. And he walks down the stairs. And you probably look and you go, what do you mean you're having a beer and drinking Cocoa Puffs? Well, he comes down the stairs. His name is Mike Hayes. God rest his soul. And he looks at me having a Cocoa Puffs and drinking a beer. And he goes, what the hell is wrong with you guys from Philly? And I said, nothing. I says, what's wrong with you guys from Buffalo? You got nothing in your fridge. You got to put milk in the fridge. Otherwise, I'd be drinking milk rather than the beer. But I got to drink something. I guess I could have drank water in all fairness. But the beer tasted better. So, long story short, he takes me out to breakfast. Well, after I get transferred back into Philadelphia, I get a care package from Mike Hayes. And in the care package, uh, about two months after I get into Philadelphia, is a bunch of um, uh, coupons for Schmidt's Beer, which is a Philadelphia icon, and these little boxes of Cocoa Puffs. And uh, nobody knew what that meant but Mike and I. The Cocoa Puffs and the beer coupons. So that was kind of my first week generating into three years later when I went up and back up in Philadelphia. It was kind of interesting. Really enjoyed it. So interesting bookends to the first day or first week in Philly. You received a uh, coupon for Cocoa Puffs, you said? No, that was for the beer, the Schmidt's beer. In your very last day in the FBI, or at least your retirement uh luncheon did you receive a coupon for anything then i think you gave me something didn't you i did you did what'd you give me a coupon for jim oh you know what i gave them for oh dunkin donuts yes we'll talk about that some other time yeah i think we should we should save that one jim that could be a whole episode in and of itself and we'll come back next week you can ask me about my first day in the office but i will say this when you mentioned Schmidt's beer, it's not made anymore. At least I don't think so, unless some new, you know, uh, nouveau uh, brewery came up with a revised version. But I used to know a bunch of Philly homicide cops even before I was a cop, and or the or the officers would tell me the one consistent to most homicide scenes in Philadelphia, besides of course the body spent rounds, blood spatter, 
empty cans of Schmidt's beer. So who knows how many homicides, at least in Philadelphia, that particular beer was responsible for. And also you take out every other letter from Schmidt's, I'll let even non-linguists can figure that one out. Yeah, yep, I got you, I got you. So again, when, when Cold Red, if you're just kind of tuning in, Ray and I, we've known each other so long, we, we kid, we joke, this is a very serious, uh, I mean, ultimately the theme and the topics on this podcast are serious, but we like to start it out a little bit light and maybe even end a little bit light if we can. If you ever watch the local news and actually the network news, you know, at the first, you know, 15 minutes, murder, mayhem, fires, car wrecks, you name it. But there's always like a feel good story at the end. Well, we're going to try to do both, you know, a little bit of feel good, but but something also educational about what it's like to be a law enforcement officer, what it's like to be an FBI agent. So I appreciate you sharing those stories with me. If you remember, Ray, write down in your notes, ask me about my first day in New York City uh, next week when we're doing this. And I'll share that with our listeners. I have, a, I have a question to kind of get us started here. Um, there's been a lot of, there's been some more talk in the news about these Idaho murders uh, and the manifesto. What's your thought process on the inability, I might say, or the uh, n- the inability of this manifesto not being released yet? Is, is this a bunch of crap or what? Well, you're talking about two different cases. Idaho is the mass stabbing of the four students in, in November. The manifesto is Nashville from about three and a half. Yeah, you're correct. So. You're correct. That's okay. I stand. I stand. I stand correct. Let's, let's talk about Idaho. Would would have what? That's what I really want to talk about Idaho. And I and I'm I still got this manifesto on my mind too. That's why I'm I'm talking about that because I'm pissed off that it, it hasn't been let out yet. You know. But uh, with this Idaho and some of these things coming out, do you think this guy really has a chance to uh, to walk away from this? Well, there's a the judge imposed a very strict gag order, more strict than a lot of them a lot of these type cases over the years. And um, and apparently both sides are, you know, defense and prosecution are supposed to adhere to it. Um, but stuff is leaking out and how viable, how, uh, how accurate, only time will tell. Um, but um, there are some issues, apparently a witness, um, I'm not sure if it's the same female witness who saw, um, I never, we never use names in the show, at least I don't, so who saw the stabber leaving that night at like 4.15 a.m., if it's that witness or some other witness who somehow has some information offered to the defense that in fact may exculpate or prove some, um, or provide some information that may prove his innocence, or at least you don't have to prove innocence, of course, in this country. You just have to uh, defend yourself against um you know, being being found guilty by a jury. So I don't know what that fact is or what those facts are or what this this witness may have provided. Obviously, the police and the investigators interviewed everyone involved in the scene. Now the defense investigators are interviewing some of these people. They don't have to talk to the defense, as you well know, Ray, uh, but the police can't tell them not to talk to the defense. You say, look, we talked to you the day after the homicide, the defense, you know, in this case, when someone's arrested, they may be contacting you. You do whatever you want. We'll turn over your report to the defense. So it sounds like the defense may have done a little cross-examination of one or more witness at the scene, and they found some inconsistencies, 
some facts that may um, um, you know dispel or 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 point away from the accused in terms of what happened that night. I was very careful in the earliest shows I went on. You know, I'm a due process guy, and of course I know you are too, Ray. You know, innocent until proven guilty, no ands, if, or buts. I will append, I will render opinions, though, and especially in forums like this, when it seems like there's a lot of evidence pointing against someone and say, boy, it looks like this, it looks like that. So I, I, I certainly feel everything put together in this case, from what I've read through media releases and the probable cause affidavit for the search warrant and the arrest warrant, that uh, it certainly seems like the Idaho police um, have the right guy. Um, but there's probably going to be other leaks. Defense attorneys aren't stupid. They put things out there. They know there's a jury pool. They know there's people that ultimately are going to be chosen to sit, 12 people with a few, you know, standbys, so to speak. And they're not stupid. They put stuff out there like this just to sort of, uh, sort of a trial balloon, just to kind of get a little bit of a sort of osmosis out there that perhaps exactly what's been in the media, that this guy's 100% guilty, no ands, if, or buts. They want to put some stuff out there that, yeah, it's not exactly what it seems. And maybe it won't be. So we're going to have to all wait until, of course, I think there's a preliminary hearing next month, uh, I believe, of some sort, in which I guess that's one of the prima facie, you know, the facts of the case have to be presented, the basic preliminary facts, enough to hold him over to trial. We should learn a lot more then, but the defense doesn't have to offer anything at that point although they can cross-examine any prosecution witnesses. So summing up all that I just said to your question, Ray, um, there's a little bit of tidbit of information there. It's not unusual for the defense to put stuff like this out, but um, um, they, have a, they, have a, they have a steep hill to climb as far as I'm concerned from what I've known in the media to, uh, to uh, show that you get, get, get an acquittal for this guy. Going back to talking about the person that they want to interview a potential witness the person they're looking to interview was actually one of the roommates of of one of the of the victims she was in the same house i believe she was the same girl that saw him in the house or well, not him but saw the individual in the house and they're trying to talk to her she was fighting it almost stating to her attorneys that she would take the fifth which I thought was a little odd because the fifth is self-incrimination. And I thought, why would you take the fifth to self-incrimination if you had nothing to do with this? But I think what they're doing is they're going back over this case, everything the police done, they're going back over and redoing it, looking through all the evidence, trying to find something that's going to exonerate or at least give a little bit of doubt to jurors so when they go back and they start talking to these people and it leaks out into the media everybody that's a potential juror in this case is going to read that and although you want to say well we don't want to taint the jury that's why there's a gag order so we have something like that things still get out but how do you get past when they pulled his trash outside of scranton pennsylvania and they took what they found as potential dna of this individual and sent it back to Idaho, and they ran the test in the DNA lab, and the DNA came back as consistent with the DNA found on the sheath, uh, on the sheath where the knife was kept that he dropped or the individual dropped at the scene. So how do you get past that? 
How do you get past that? Plus, you had the animal in there. And apparently, from his vehicle, they had some uh, brownish, reddish brownish stains. We don't know what those are yet. They found animal hairs. Did some of those animal hairs get on, on him? You know how the transference, Lockhart's principle, the transference of evidence that you just can brush by and it just kind of attaches to you. They also recovered inside his home, like a nitrate-type black glove, store receipts, a Dickies bag, dust from a vacuum, even a fire TV stick and a computer tower. So you always say, what is on the computer tower? And then if you go back and you low, you look at his phone records. The phone records put him in the area of that home of the victims between 9.12 and 9.21 a.m. And again, 12 times between last June and the time of his arrest. So was he stalking these people the whole time, Jim? That certainly seems to be a logical presumption. And in the prosecution of any crime, um, the, the, the DAs, the prosecutors, they don't have to prove motive. But it certainly helps uh, a jury understand what it is they're about to render a verdict upon. That is, in this case, you know, four different counts of homicide. Of course, they're going to be looking at all these different factors. The defense has a lot of uh, uphill battles, as I said. You know, I was, um, we, we've heard for years, Ray, that there's a, um, about 15 or so years ago with the TV show CSI, Crime Scene Investigators, in which basically every crime they investigated on TV had either video or DNA or some highly, you know, um, inculpatory evidence, direct evidence, and people watch that on TV. And then in real cases, in real life, there's nothing wrong with circumstantial evidence to convict someone. There's nothing wrong with indirect evidence to convict someone. There's nothing wrong with you know eyewitness or ear witness if done right. Um, but it turns out that a lot of these juries were acquitting people because they didn't have DNA, they didn't have crystal clear video of the crime actually being committed because the TV show, that's how every single last act ended, it, you know, something like that. Well, I met someone at the VDOC Society, and of course, we're both members of that. Um, that's a cold case uh, crime solving uh, institution or, or nonprofit to which we belong. Uh, and uh, I met an attorney there last week and said, well, uh, or actually about a month ago, and she said, it's not only CI, uh, CSI juries we're now putting up with, it's also Netflix juries. And I said, boy, Netflix jury, that's a new one on me. And my brain started twisting. I said, I think I know where you're going. And she said, yeah, because you watch Netflix and it's all these documentaries about um, um, Staircase is one of them. I watched the documentary and and the scripted series. And but there's, you know, hundreds of others of them out there in which, um, you know, it's an old court case. It's an old homicide, you know, multiple homicides, whatever. Someone's arrested and and someone is then um, uh, the, the convictions overturned through appeals. I mean, this, um, uh, I forget his name, uh, but the, the, uh, the subject of the, of the um, one of the first true crime podcasts is called Serial. And this happened, I think, in Baltimore County, Maryland. Uh, Syed, I believe is his name. And he was let out of jail about six, six or eight weeks ago after this uh, wasn't Netflix per se, but I think there was a documentary on Netflix that actually talked about the Serial podcast. And now he's out. Maybe he deserves to be out. I, I don't know all the facts of that case. But uh, now these uh, these juries now are so conscious, you better have DNA, you better have fingerprints that no, you know, no doubt match and videotape. 
Oh, and by the way, on Netflix, all these cases are being thrown out five or 10 years later. Statistic-wise, it doesn't, it doesn't hold any water because it's, you know, one one-thousandth of one percent of these cases get thrown out. And if they are thrown out, <laughs> the vast majority of the time, it's a legal technicality. And I'm not arguing that if, if, if some lawyers got together and, oh, the, he didn't, you know, dot his I after this sentence or, or put a different verb in there than what was actually said in the confession, uh, there's some kind of discrepancy there, then, you know, the case can be overturned. So that's what a lot of jurors are looking at now. And they don't want to be on Netflix five or 10 years later, even if not by their face or name, just in reference of getting a case long. So if there's a scintilla of something in a case that said, you know, maybe not guilty, where years ago they would have voted guilty, um, they'll go with it. And a lot of guys in cases that are very obvious um, to me as an outsider, but who knows the criminal justice system, a lot of these cases are winding in acquittals. And these prosecutors saying this is part of the problem we're living with now. Social media, TV, all these uh, true crime advocates that have uh, uh, their own podcast. You and I, Ray, we talk the talk. We've also walked the walk prosecuting people, you know, from A to Z. And a lot of these folks have these very popular podcasts. And God love them if they bring in, you know, experienced guests or experienced um uh, you know, investigators, uh, forensic people, uh, and they let them render some of the opinions. But it can get a little difficult, and I'm looking to bring anyone down in their competition. If they're just careful in what they say, they put out the facts as they see them, I'm okay with that. But it can get very uh, problematic with some of the very popular podcast and really puts a message out there about an ongoing criminal case or one under appeal. And it could sort of... Uh, it, it just it, it could be an intervening variable that the criminal justice system doesn't really need. So it's a whole new phenomenon that uh, prosecutors are now dealing with in the U.S. I want to want to jump into something here, because when I look at the Idaho murders um, and the slaughter of four innocent victims, it reminds me. And when I first saw this case in the media, we talked about this earlier and, and you I don't know if you weren't were not in the unit at the time or you were away, but back in 2007, there was a homicide of a family in Mannheim Township, Pennsylvania. Well, you know where that's at. It's a little bit north on the way to Harrisburg, Jim, not that far from Harrisburg, PA. And what happens is there's uh, four people in the family that are home, a mother, father, a 16-year-old young man, and a 20-year-old daughter that just came home from college the night of the murder or the afternoon before the murder. Uh, and in this, the father is killed. The mother is, uh, is severely wounded. And then the, uh, the play takes uh, and moves into the son's room where there's an extreme struggle at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. And the daughter, who apparently the offender had no idea was home at the time, didn't know she was home from college, runs in, sees the mother, and the mother says, get out of here and get help. And she gets out and she runs across the street. And the offender then goes back into the bedroom where the mother is and slits her throat and kills her. And you look at it much the same way because everything was done with a knife, much like in the Idaho murders. And I thought... 
wow. And then when we when we looked at this and you were trying to figure out who this was, and usually, and you know, Jim, being down in the unit and, and having working some homicide case and sexual offense cases, we very rarely get a chance to visit a crime scene. Very rarely do we get a chance to visit the actual crime scene. Most of the time, when we're looking at these cases, we're looking at these cases based upon crime scene photos. Well, in this instance, I have an opportunity to go up and walk through the scene, which was extremely valuable to me. And it was extremely evident as soon as I went in that the focus of this whole thing was not the parents, was not the sister, who we didn't even know was there anyways, but was the, was the brother, the 16-year-old sophomore that went to Man, Mannheim Township High School. He was the focus, and you could see it. I've never seen, either in photographs or real life, the amount of blood that was all over that room. There wasn't a, a spot in that room that wasn't sprinkled with blood or splatter over the walls, over the carpet. It, it was absolutely, you said, here's where the rage was. Here was the victim. So my thing to the detectives was, look, you need to focus on the victimology. And that was a fairly new new term at that time, at least not to us, but to a lot of the other police departments outside of the of the unit. And when we, we actually talked to them, they had no idea what victimology is. But that was a real thing that helped solve this case because the offender happened to be a good friend of the... Uh, of the son, and although we never ever found out what the motivation was, there was something where he said he didn't like happy people. And when you look, uh, and it really you, you say, and I say, well, that's really a stretch. What that means, but when you look at this and you you look into the background of the offender, he had anger issues. He had tried to strangle his brother when he was younger, at like twelve years old, and his brother was ten. So he had some issues growing up. And what we found out from uh, some of the friends was that he made a, a homosexual advance to, this, uh, to his friend and was denied. And that's what set him off. But my point here in talking in parodies, I wonder what the motivation was behind uh, this Mannheim Township and Idaho. When I look at and I say motivation, I'm thinking, why were they specifically selected these were not random in in the manheim these this family and the and the uh his friend were specifically selected apparently uh the offender in the idaho murders was tracking his uh victims for some time now maybe not all four but part of those victims so why did what was it that caused them to take that final step and much like when we talk a little bit later about mass murderers, the kind of process is the same. The pathway to violence that we talked about earlier, too, that grievance and then the ideation and how they kind of go through that. Um, and it, then it turns in and it manifests into something else. But I find it very interesting when you look at both of these cases, how much there is similarities to it as much as there is differences. Interesting to me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, my, my undergrad degree is in criminal justice from Penn State, and I, I was always a student of violent type crimes. I mean, certainly of mass or serial, uh, with mass murder or serial murder elements to it. And I remember growing up in Philly, 
and this is before both our times, I'm sure our listeners and viewers may think we're pretty old, but in 1949, there was a guy named Unruh in Camden, New Jersey, right across the river from Philadelphia, and he just walked around on a sunny afternoon with a uh, handgun of some sort, and he killed 13 people, I think injured a few others. And he was just a quiet, milquetoast sort of guy that had all these kinds of issues that fomented over the years. And I think some victims were random, some were not. Uh, I think the most random, um, I mean, there's probably been other examples since then, but I think I was around 12 or 13 years old uh, in the summer of 1966, University of Texas uh, at Austin, the Texas Tower shooter. I remember Charles Whitman, who would stand up uh, or go up into a tower and just randomly shoot at people um, you know, on the ground. They're like little ants walking along. He had telescopic sights, of course. So there's someone, Ray, victimology is not going to help in that case. And believe me, I'm a big proponent of victimology. You certainly have to look at the behavioral elements of the shooter in this regard and, and if unknown, do a profile. If you know the person, look into, into their particular lifestyle. I mean, you can't rule out that something like that would happen. And one of the victims could have been a target that he knew crossed the quad every day at noon, something like that. But in his case, there wasn't. And um, in the DC sniper case, when it first happened, six people were killed. I was giving a tour to some journalists, the FBI Academy. Of course, you can't get tours there, as you know, but I, for some friends, I would do it a few times a year. And we, brought, we walked out and there's a TV station on in the, in the lobby of the FBI Academy. I think it was on CNN when they still used to do news instead of what they do now. But, um, but they said, oh, six people killed in Montgomery County, you know, sniper. And they said, Jim, you're the profiler. What happened? I said, I don't know. I'm just watching this with you. I, I, I need more information. But it wouldn't surprise me uh, if one of those victims was the actual targeted person and, um, and the other ones were collateral damage. I hate to use that term, but in, the, in a tactical sort of environment like this, it's a wartime, express, wartime expression, but it certainly applies to this type of a mass shooting. Here it turns out I was in the right church, but the wrong pew. Those six people, none of those was the intended target who he was, uh, who John Muhammad was really aiming for, ultimately to kill, was his ex-wife, who he was paying a lot of money in alimony and child support, and he wasn't allowed to even see his kids. He was such a screwed up father. Uh, and his, one of his, his, his next target after he killed the bus driver in uh, October of 2002 in Montgomery County, right in her, his ex-wife's neighborhood, his next target was going to be her, but luckily we put everything together. We can discuss that case in some other podcasts. So, so yeah, victimology is great. Um, and uh, in the Unabom case, they did a, the first time they ever used a computer in a case, they took every single bombing victim, there were 16 of them at this point, and they tried to, they ran everything into these early software programs, trying to find some kind of a link. And, um, and there was not these these victims were so random. And my last example from my life in uh, March, I believe, of 1976, about five months before I was hired as a Ben Salem cop, um, the vast majority of the APT family, APT uh, family, were killed. Was killed in uh, Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, where I was soon to become a police officer. And I remember reading in the news. I already taken had already taken the Ben Salem test. And geez, what kind of what kind of neighborhood am I uh, going to be patrolling soon? But here it was uh, 
uh, five family members and the boyfriend of like a teenage girl. The killer even killed the dog. Uh, but as the family members were coming home one at a time, he had a, a weapon, a, uh, may have even been a rifle. He would hide, shoot them, drag the bodies downstairs. He really wanted to kill the two brothers who used to tease him when they were younger. Um, uh, and then George Gushwent was eventually identified as the killer. And uh, he really wanted the two brothers, but one was in prison and one was just away for most of that day. And, and the guys that he really wanted to kill, he didn't. He killed the parents, three other family members, including a 10-year-old kid, another sister, uh, and, uh, and the dog. And uh, just a very sad story. So we can go on and on with these types of cases. And you can, you can synthesize everything we're saying here. And we know the investigators and the prosecutors in Idaho are looking at all of these factors, all of these features. I said from my earliest appearance on Fox News the night after Thanksgiving, of last year that, you know, this guy is most likely going to be linked to one of the victims. I don't know how, it could be tangential, it could be up close and personal, uh, it could be a one-time thing, it could be a multiple-time thing. The woman may not even know he exists. Probably the woman was one of the women that, you know, he had some kind of a real or perceived relationship with. And there are two important words when you're dealing with any kind of a, a, of a, of a killer. Uh, you know, what's real in their life, what's perceived. And we both, you know, we know the difference, the listeners and viewers do. Something that's real is actually happening objectively, empirically in front of you. What's perceived is what's in the back of your mind that may be sort of kind of happening in a way, but to people who perceive these things and allow it to control their personalities and create all kinds of uh, paranoia and other sort of violent ideation issues within them, um, it's real to them. So if this woman rejected, he went to buy her a drink and either she said no, I'm talking to the Idaho killer, or she took the drink and probably the worst thing, she drank it and walked off with some other guy. You know, that's about the most classic, uh, you know, rejection, I mean, in a bar that you could get. And I said from that very night on, this guy is probably incel, also involuntary celibate. So it's, it's myriad reasonings and factors and rationales uh, that all combine here in this in this soup that is uh, the human brain, and uh, and I'm sure there are forensic psychologists probably working for both sides uh, right now. I don't know who they are, but um, by name, but they're both trying their best to get into the brain of this guy and figure out um, um, what made him tick, what made him do what he did, like we do with every with every single killer uh, once they're identified. Understanding trial. You know, Jimmy, you make some great points here. You really, really do. I want to take you back to what you said about the Texas Tower shooter. And what you may not know, because this was part of my dissertation for my doctorate studies, was that Whitman, before he got up, up in the tower, he was a Marine that just came back from Vietnam. There was some PTSD, so there was some uh, mental anguish with him. But the first person he killed was not from the Texas Tower. First person he killed was his mother. And he stabbed her. And he killed her and then left a note and said she's in a better off place than I am right now. And then he goes home and kills his wife. And then sleeps with his wife. And then gets up the next morning and makes the trek to the University of Texas and goes up to Texas Tower. So when you look and you talk about the victimology, 
And maybe we should look at a different term and say, maybe we should look at the offender. And we look at him and we say, what was he so damn angry about? What was he so damn angry about that he had this grievance and he came up with this idea and he planned this out because he just didn't wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to do this and go up to the tower. He planned it out. So there was some planning and then there was some preparation because he had a lot of weapons and MREs, the whole thing before he, he created the attack, much like what happened at Nashville. Almost very similar to happened at Nashville that happened at Virginia Tech. It happened at UVA. With the with just with just recently, but the thing that still angers the hell of me, I said this in the beginning of the program, is where the hell is the manifesto? What is our old outfit doing? Why haven't they released it yet? Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't, um, but I, I think it's important to go over some fact. We've talked about this case a little bit uh, in our in, in cold red so far, but I've uh, I've done my share of research and uh, I have a few bullet points. I think it's a good time to share with our viewers and our listeners. And Ray, I know you're familiar with some of these, but actually a friend of mine, a forensic linguist um, named Julie Cooper, um, she actually wrote for the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin. You don't have to be in law enforcement to get published with them. And you're very familiar. I know. I, I know I had an article published there. I believe you may have had too. But, um, but she actually looked at a bunch of different manifestos going way back uh, over the years. And so before we kind of get into the weeds about the question you just asked, why isn't this thing being released? Let's look at uh, some of the different categorizations. And I'm going to borrow from my notes here. So if you see me looking down, but there are at least five different kinds of manifestos of targeted violent offenders. And they are uh, the first one: short social media post. And I'll just give an example uh, of the, uh, and I won't use names, of course, but there was a shooter in uh, December of 2019 that shot up the Naval Air Station, Pensacola. I remember a few different uh, military people killed there. Tragic. Well, every event here is tragic. But this person uh, tweeted multiple times in advance of what he was about to do. So that falls under the show, short social media post. And again, manifesto is a very... Uh, you know, amorphous sort of word. It can mean different things to different people. So that's one of them. The other one here, the next one is elaborate essay style statements. And a good example of that one is from August of 2019. There's a, uh, a guy in El Paso, Texas, who shot up a uh, Walmart. And, uh, and this guy in his, in his strategic action, I'm sorry, in his essay, uh, he, um, he put a lot of information down about why he was doing it. I think this guy didn't like Mexicans coming across the border, certainly illegal ones. And that's what this guy's elaborate essay was. And we'll come back to this number two version. The other one, another one is strategic action plans. And there was a guy in uh, November of 2015 that shot up the University of California at Merced. Um, actually, he didn't shoot him up. He, he stabbed a number of people. And this was a detailed road, roadmap and supply list and phrases of everything he was going to do. Then there's the people, number four, who write the thought-provoking flyers. And an example of that is a 2009 murder of a Seattle police officer by an individual who was actually handing out these flyers a week or so before uh, the targeted murder of this particular officer. And the last one here is cell phone videos. Uh, there's a shooting attack in a in October of 2014 in Ottawa, Canada, 
in which it provides some sort of explanation. So these things, they come in many forms. They differ in scope, complexity, and even the preparation time. But um, my friend Julie, and, and she's done research with others, these are kind of the five basic sort of manifestos by loose definition out there. Uh, the Unabomber would have been number two, the elaborate essay style. Uh, we don't, uh, uh, a statement, he never again called it a manifesto. He referred to it as an article. Uh, we don't know what the Nashville shooter has. They could be a bunch of incoherent notes and bullet points. We just don't know. Uh, but I have a feeling from some of what's leaked out about this case, it falls into something similar, at least in, um, in, in content, to the Unabomber's manifesto, where it's this elaborate essay thing. Just a few other bullet points. They, they vary in length. Um, the, the shooter of the, in the Pittsburgh synagogue in October of 18, he only had 26 words in his manifesto. It was on the social media site Gab. It was like one hour prior he announced he was going to do this, uh, this shooting. Then we have the guy in Oslo, Norway, uh, the, the bomber and shooter in uh, 2011. He killed, I think, oh, about 100 people, putting a bunch of kids on an island. Took the police so long to get there, and he's just walking around killing them. But he actually blew up a, a car or, or two beforehand in Oslo. And he had a 1,500-page manifesto that he sent online to a 1,000 different recipients. So these guys, they go from extreme ideo, uh, ideologies to personal grievances, everything from race, ethnicity, anti-government, anti-authority, um, uh, inceldom, jihad, idiosyncratic ideologies, uh, you know, some show paranoia, some acting on emotions, some plan it out for a long time, some only a few days. So we've talked a lot about manifesto, having it released, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I believe it should be released. And I believe at a minimum early on, it should be law enforcement sensitive to every law enforcement agency, quite frankly, in North America. But our Canadian brothers and sisters have access to this too. Uh, let's find out the rationale behind this person's decision to, in fact, go into a school and kill some nine-year-olds and, and, and some other adults. All their, all their lives are equal, of course, in terms of being victims of this, of this mad woman or madman, depending how one wants to define the individual. But to, to go after the nine-year-olds, if it's a complete disregard for human nature to kill your peers, your adults, there's a whole other synapse disconnection in one's brain when they go after little kids like that. Uh, I mean, Newtown was no different years ago um, in New England when that uh, shooting occurred in the school. So. Um, what I also say, this, this, this shooter happens to be dead, so there will be no trial. We were talking earlier about the Idaho uh, stabber. Um, believe me, when that goes to trial, any, any evidence that they have of written material, recorded material, social media material, that will be presented to the jury. That will be public source information eventually by journalists in the room if it's video, I mean, if it's a, a live stream type trial, I don't know that yet. So that information will be out there at a trial. Now, since the Nashville case is not going to a trial, in a way, we're actually going to suffer. We, members of the public, we're going to be sort of left behind and in the dark as to what is the motion uh, 
motivation. What is the rationale for this person having done what they did? You know, I've said it here in the podcast before. I was just driving on the interstate today, Ray, and there's a big digital sign up there about, you know, drunk driving, don't text, all that stuff. The next one up the road was see something, say something. Okay, tell us what the hell we're looking for. I've used those words before. I want to see it. I don't need everybody. I don't know how they, I don't have to know how they hate individual people. I don't want to know how bombs are built or constructed. I mean, we know that and we've seen writings like that. And quite frankly, that stuff's on the internet anyway. But I also want to take this to the next level. And that is, there is a trans community. This person was a trans, uh, transgender person switching from uh, female, biological female to male. That is what it is. There's a trans community out there. We know that. We accept that. The vast majority are not violent people. They have a right to know what their transitional peers are writing, are saying, and it should be them who come to the forefront when this is published and said, no, that is not the trans community. You can think what you want about women's sports, and maybe that's for another podcast. And who's trans, who's not, the whole Bud Light commercial stuff, whatever. But when it comes down to the very much essence of us being protected in our everyday lives, we should know a little bit more, quite frankly, we should know a lot more than we do now about the rationale of someone who subscribes as some sort of an ideology that feels they have to go and kill little kids in the school. If it's in writing, get it out there so other people can identify future writers. If it was going to trial, we know about it anyway. It's not because the police did a great job in uh, taking care of their business, but we as members of the public deserve to have at least a, uh, a viable uh, and complete synopsis of, uh, of what this person wrote and the rationale behind what he or she did that day a few weeks ago. I couldn't agree with you more. And when you look and some of the research you've done on what these manifestos are, a lot of these mass shooters, active shooters, they consider these to be legacy tokens for themselves, something that they want people to remember them by. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist here and say the reason why the FBI is not, FBI is not releasing it is for this reason or that reason. I know there's a lot of people out there that are doing that. I don't want to come up with theories. I just want to know what to look for so that we can prevent the next situation like this happening. And everything you said, I, there's not much more I can add to that, but I want to know, I want to be educated. And that was the big thing about what I do in training and going out and doing some training around these active shooters is looking for these pre-behavior indicators. I want to I want to be able to tell people and I want to know this is what you have to look for. And a lot of people always say, why do I care? If I tell the police, what are the police going to do? Well, guess what? You know, I've talked to the police about this. I've talked to hundreds, if not thousands of police officers, and every single one of them have said, I don't care if we get 99 out of 100 leads that turn up nothing. We just don't want to miss that one lead that's going to help us prevent the next mass casualty event. That's what this is all about. we got to look how to prevent these things, and the only way to do that is to educate ourselves, and they're leaving us a roadmap. 
So why aren't we using it? Unless what is being stated in the manifesto, I, you know, you're, I'm right, Joe. I don't really care about the bombs. I want to know what their thought process was. I want to know what did her friends, her family, what did they miss? Or what did they ignore? What type of behavior did they ignore? I mean, this individual just didn't wake up and say, hey, I'm going to do this. Much like Virginia Tech. You know, he didn't wake up in the morning. He, you know, you had two separate scenes at Virginia Tech. You got the first one, which was in a, a dormitory. Now, he goes and he goes after this uh, 19-year-old freshman. And he kills her. She didn't kill her right away. She lived up for a little bit. But he shoots her. And eventually kills her. Now, why he specifically selected this person? Why? We never know. And then, much like the Texas Tower individual, he goes to a to a academic building, Norris Hall. He takes chains with him, and he chains the doors up on both ends so people can't get out. Then goes to the second floor and goes classroom to classroom and starts killing people. 32 people. 32 people lost their lives that day, and 16 were wounded. And then you look at UVA, right? Now, here's one. UVA, here's an individual that was a football player with the three football players that were killed. So to me, the offender here specifically selected his targets. They were other football players on the University of Virginia football team that lost their lives, plus two other people that, as you said before, Jim, were probably collateral damage. They weren't the specific targets that he was looking at. But he specifically selected them. Why did he wait? He goes into D.C. for a play with them on the bus, drives all the way back, which is a two-hour ride. So two-hour ride there. The play's a couple hours. Probably gets something to eat. They come back two hours. And just as they get back to campus, he turns the gun and starts shooting these individuals. Why? Would love to be able to talk to him and find out, why did you do that? Was it because, and if you look at his background a little bit, and I looked at his background a little bit, he grew up in public housing, and growing up in public housing, he was bullied a lot, and he took things out on other people that bullied him, which leads me to believe that maybe some of the motivation here, because I know having played college football, I know that a lot of there is some bullying or teasing that goes on, maybe teasing that's not so much bullying, but it's a form of bullying, and maybe they did that because he only lasted one year on the team. And then maybe he didn't play well enough or he was shoot off or whatever the reason may have been. But he was coming back and he specifically selected these three people. Much like the offender in Virginia Tech selected, selected that young girl in that dormitory room for whatever reason uh, that may have been. I have no idea. But it just goes to show you when you're looking at these things, how closely related they are. And I would love to know, would love to know what the thought process of was of that young girl or or man uh whatever she was at the time i would love to know what her uh thought process was why that school it's in writing i know it is this person to one degree or another bared their soul in their private writings and we as a public have a right to know 
some parts of our government are trying to take our guns away from us. Um, we don't get into a whole Second Amendment discussion here because we're going to wrap up in a few minutes, I know. But if you're trying to suppress people from owning weapons, well, then you better tell us what other people are doing um, and what they're thinking and what their ideology is when they get the weapons. Because bad people get weapons. There's no ands, if or buts about that. So again, I don't want to shift this into a Second Amendment dis discussion. But uh, you know, if 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 you're if there's no if there's no gun zones and 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 places that people can't carry, certainly in some states and some cities, then we want to know who the people who legally have guns, what they're going to do with them, and for what reason, so we can at least better prepare ourselves on a on a in a totality sort of form. Obviously, you're in a classroom. The door opens. There's someone in there. That's a whole different set of. Uh, of muscle memory that has to take over. I know you do some training in that regard, Ray. We can perhaps talk about that at some other time. But from a from a from a wider angle, from that you know, sort of uh, looking out the binoculars from the other end, you know, the reverse way. I want to know what kind of people are out there thinking in these certain ways. And and if I hear someone espousing that kind of stuff, or uh, or my kids or grandkids hear something like that, I want to make sure I can say, you know what. We should maybe get the school authorities or the police or someone involved to uh, to look into this. So, um, yeah, um, sometimes, Ray, when we're done, we have more questions that we brought up than answers. But I hope the folks that are listening and answering, uh, listening, can hear uh, and viewing can, uh, you know, can understand a little bit better where we're coming from and why uh, it, it's, you know, the human mind is complex. No one can predict human behavior. I love the movie Minority Report with Tom Cruise and others, but it doesn't happen in real life. Certainly not yet. And, uh, and as good as you and I are, Ray, uh, we're not there yet either uh, in terms of total prediction of someone's uh, potential violent uh, homicidal or su suicidal ideation. So, uh, but it's, it's having these types of discussions. And hopefully our listeners and viewers are are picking up some of these things and, and they can talk to their elected officials. They can talk to their police people and say, we want to see if someone's putting a roadmap out there. I'll use your word, Ray. Um, <laughs> I want to follow those directions. So I want to make sure I'm not at the uh, terminus point when that person is walking or driving along and then pulls out their weapons. Tell us why and we can protect ourselves better. Bottom line. I think this has been a great show, Jim. I really do. Um, what I'd like to do is we always do before we sign off here is I'd like to leave our listeners with a couple uh, factors that may help them should they uh, ever be faced with a situation that they're in and how they may be able to recognize some of these behaviors. Look, uh, the first thing is and I'm, I'll start out, Jim, is don't think that you're tattletailing or ratting on someone. If you see something that makes you feel uncomfortable, if you see someone that's extremely depressed, if you see something that someone that makes suicidal statements, if there's threatening or harassing behavior, usually threatening, harassing behavior is usually uh, collaborated with with destruction of property. When you see those things, all right. You need to say something. You need to tell the proper authorities exactly what you're seeing so that they can deal with it. 
Let the experts handle it. Don't feel as though you're labeling someone. That's not what this is about. It's really important. You're not only helping yourself and potentially saving yourself from some sort of travesty, but you're helping the individual that doesn't know how to ask for help themselves. If they did, you'd never have this problem, but they're always going, there's all these things, and I can go into many, many more things, but please, if you see something that you feel uncomfortable with, please say something. I'll tell you this one thing about the, um, they called it the Fort Dick Six. It was back in 2011. There were six individuals uh, that were preparing to attack Fort Dix. And uh, what they did is they took some film of it, of what they were doing, their, their, their training. And they took that uh, little disc that they did the, the film with, and they took it to a circuit city. And they took it to this circuit city, which doesn't even exist anymore, by the way. And they said, can you make me six copies? What they're doing is they're developing that manifesto type of uh, ideology where they're going to be able to pass that on that if something were to happen to them. And what they do is they take it to this kid. The kid says, sure, come back at four o'clock. So he sits there and he puts it in and he says, well, let's see what these guys have. And he watches it while he's eating his lunch. And he goes, I don't feel comfortable with this. And he calls the Cherry Hill office, right? Cherry Hill PD. And Cherry Hill PD has someone attached to our Joint Terrorism Task Force in Philadelphia. And they call over there. And within three hours, we had all six individuals under surveillance. And we waited six months before we took them down because we wanted to make sure that it was, was it a, an isolated cell or was it part of a greater, uh, greater mass of individuals. And we found it was just these six individuals and they're still in prison because this kid seen something and he said something. Imagine if he didn't, the amount of life that would have been lost. And he's not labeling these people. He just says, hey, this is a normal behavior. If you see something that's not normal, don't let it go past you. Jump all over it. Jim? I'm not sure I can top that particular statement. We'll keep on that theme of, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a shame like in, in certain cultures in this country that you don't, uh, you know, you don't, uh, you don't snitch, you don't become an informant, you don't, you know, you witness a murder, but you can't cooperate with the police. And, and um, I mean, that's, that's very much a very specific situation, but it's also people that are, uh, that have more long, long-term and grandiose plans that people know something's unusual, but they just don't uh, un unfortunately take advantage of it. Look, even our own FBI people, uh, they get called into, I think it was, uh, is it West Virginia? There's some kind of a call center array and what the, uh, was the Parkland school in, uh, 2000, I think 17, that was, uh, or 18, whenever that was shot up, um, they had information about this particular shooter and even trained FBI analysts didn't know what to do with it. But you know what, you know, take your chances with that. Still call law enforcement, still call the authorities, send an email. You can do it anonymously if you want. Um, no one's going to get arrested necessarily that very minute, unless, of course, the police go out and they do find someone with guns, with bombing material. I'll leave you with this. I remember working a case back in the day uh, in a, as a profiler, and um, 
I believe it was a Walmart that had someone bring in a bunch of pictures. It was like in a, uh, early to mid-October of that year. And these were pictures of explosive devices from step one. They were still pictures, but they showed some very basic uh, PVC pipes. They showed some gray powder. They showed fuses. They showed these little clock mechanisms, everything putting together. And then slowly, like each, each subsequent picture would have the device put together even more to where it looked very much like a workable IED improvised explosive device. These pictures get sent to Quantico. We get the, the bomb tech you know, people involved. Everyone's working this together. And finally, there was some surveillance going on. We found out who dropped them off. And here was a kid, I think his first or second year in college. And um, thought, all right, we got a serial bomber here or a mass bomber, whatever it was gonna be. And here it turns out um, he was uh, preparing for Halloween. And these were all inert devices. They were not, no explosive material at all. And they were harmless. They looked darn good because he even painted them at the end, whatever. So uh, he, was invest he was investigated. He was interviewed. Everyone did the job the way they should have back then. And the kid kind of apologized. But we profiters were involved. And of course, we said, hey, these look like real devices. Yeah, go go interview this guy. Do it carefully. Look for trip wires and maybe wait till he comes out of his, his residence before you actually talk to him. And uh, they did all those precautions. And it turns out this was all about a Halloween prank or I don't know what was it a, a Unibomb themed Halloween party. I don't know where everybody wore the aviator glasses and the hoodie. But uh, so there's something with sort of a uh, that'll be sort of our comic relief for the end. Uh, nothing did happen, and this guy was very apologetic, and I'll never build fake bombs again, I remember he told one of the FBI agents, said, yeah, we probably shouldn't, and, and certainly don't take pictures of them to have them get developed. And for the younger people out there, pictures weren't always on iPhones. You actually had to take a roll of film out of a camera, take it to a store, and, you know, 24, 48-hour turnaround time, you get your pictures back. But the guys developing the film, the men and women developing these pictures, they were mandated by the law that they had to report child porn or certainly any indicators of uh, violent behavior. So uh, in that case, uh, everyone did their job right, but luckily uh, it, was a, uh, it was a false alarm, so to speak. Well, with that said, uh, we want to thank you for joining us, and uh, we hope to, that you'll come back and see us again and again and again. Uh, with that, it's... Uh, Fitz and Ray, signing off. Leave us some comments. Tell us what else you want to hear about, and we'll uh, we'll do the best to address it in the next week or two. Take care, guys. See you next time.